Your Bibles now, if you would please, to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5. Today, as we continue our study in the Sermon on the Mount, we come to the last of the Beatitudes. Uh, Beatitudes means blessings. And as an introduction to this sermon that Jesus preached, he gave five blessings, or excuse me, eight blessings that he pronounced upon the people. And he said that these are characteristics, or they're about characteristics that are to be displayed as those who are part of God's kingdom. Now, the Beatitudes mean happiness, and in all seven of these that come before this last one, there clearly is no happiness here for those who are non-Christians. If you're not a child of God, there, there's just no sense in this, because you can't believe that happiness can be found in self-denial, there's no happiness in forsaking the pleasures of sin. There's no happiness in laying aside material pursuits to seek God only and His righteousness only. Those things just don't seem to fit with what the world calls happiness. And least of all, when we come to this last beatitude, we don't think that there could ever be happiness being shut out from friends and family. Uh, there's no happiness if you're a loner who's made fun of. There's no happiness uh, living a life that centers you squarely in the crosshairs of an evil society because your life has always been a reminder of their constant sinfulness. Now, those who follow Christ will be a source of irritation to people in the world, and that causes certain forms, different forms of persecution to come. Now, today we're going to go through this whole list of Beatitudes, and as we read, we'll see how this builds towards this last one. Uh, the first seven, if these first seven are evident in your life, then they will produce the results of this last Beatitude, the eighth one. Now, if you'll stand with me, please, we'll read God's Word, and we're looking at Matthew chapter 5, and let's start with verse number 1. Matthew 5, verse number 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come today, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for those who have come to hear what the word of God has to say. Uh, we just ask you, Lord, to open our hearts to your word. May we understand this better in the message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, that statement is key to these three verses that make up the eighth beatitude. This is a blessing for persecution, but it's for only one cause. Blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, if you look at the beatitudes as a whole, 
which is exactly the way that they are to be taught, and that's the way that we've approached this portion of Scripture. If you break it down, you'll see that it's, this whole this whole scenario here, all of these statements are about righteousness. You start out with poor in spirit and break that down and you talk about mourning. That's all about recognizing our unrighteousness, uh, how that we're not right with God. The next five blessings are about seeking righteousness to correct that and then also about reflecting the righteousness that has been given to us by our faith in Christ. And then this last beatitude is about what happens to you because you have become righteous. That it all has to do with righteousness. And the purpose here of these few statements is righteousness. And that's the theme of the entire Bible. As we said, the theme of the Bible is Christ, and it's all about how sinful man can be made like him. And so in that sense, righteousness and speaking about Christ, we're saying exactly the same thing when we we say this is the theme of the Bible. Righteousness is equivalent to the central theme of the Bible because it's all about Christ and how we can be made righteous to be made right with God, to come into fellowship with God. And so here we have the last beatitude, which is the result of kingdom living. Now, the first seven are to get us to the place that we're like Christ. And then this last one is about what happens to us when we become like Christ. We're persecuted for righteousness. Now, let's talk for a few minutes about this today, about being persecuted. There's a blessing that's pronounced for those who are persecuted. And that just simply goes against every fiber of our being to think that happiness could be found in what most people would consider to be just total misery. So why are we persecuted? Why does trouble follow a dedicated believer? Well, let's look first today at reasons for persecution. And I can't emphasize enough that this beatitude says that persecution comes for righteousness' sake. Now, Jesus does not say that you are blessed simply for persecution. It's tied to righteousness. Now, there are many people that have a persecution complex. I mean, because of something that they do, because of some a way that they live, or because of their shortcomings, or possibly because of the way they irritate people by just the things that they do, they feel persecuted. But this is not a blessing that's pronounced because of persecution or for persecution's sake, but it's pronounced because of righteousness' sake. Even sometimes people will think that they're being religiously persecuted, and that's because they practice their religion in a particular way. When you try to force your beliefs on someone, when you become uh, obnoxious in the way that you handle yourself, and even it can be when you're witnessing to someone, you can be persecuted but not necessarily for righteousness' sake. Now, if your practice is that you like to embarrass people and you want to corner them and you approach people in an obtrusive manner with the gospel of Christ, then yes, you might indeed be persecuted, but it won't be for righteousness' sake. If you make yourself a public nuisance by tying up traffic, holding up signs and throwing, yelling at people in cars as they go by, then yes, you might be persecuted, But don't let the preacher tell you that you're being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, Jesus is not saying here in this beatitude that you're persecuted because of the fanatical ways that you might practice your religion, but you're persecuted because of righteousness for your godly living. So why are you persecuted for righteousness' sake? Well, first we might say that it's because of the character of Christ. Because of the character of Christ. If I told you that... 
if you act like the worst criminal that you can think of, and then I followed that up with this statement, that you will be treated like the worst criminal, would you be surprised if I made a statement like that? No, you wouldn't, because we even treat our children that way. We tell them that there's a consequence. We say, if you do this, this is what I'm going to do to you. And there's an expectation that follows that. Wrong behavior brings a certain expectation to it, that, of course, you would be harmed by that. And there's also an expectation that follows right behavior or follows righteousness. But the only rub that we find in this is that those who have the best moral character, that those who are upright in their dealings, that those who always tell the truth, that those who are always helping people, those who are always compassionate, those who are always humble... We certainly wouldn't expect that that kind of person would be treated like the worst criminal. And yet that is exactly the way that Jesus was treated. Righteousness was the source of his ill treatment. They crucified him like the worst of criminals, even though this was a man that never committed even the first sin. And so if you display the character of Christ, you can expect that you're going to be treated in the same way. And why would we expect anything less? Because that's what Jesus taught. That's what he told the disciples. In John chapter 15, he said to them, and this was just before he was about to go to the cross, he said, if the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. And so there Jesus is saying that if you live like him, if you do what he did, it will produce such animosity that you're going to receive the same kind of treatment that he received. And persecution, that's really been the pattern all the way back from the very beginning. Human history was only just a few years old when the first righteous person was killed because of his righteousness. We know the story about Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain rose up and he killed his brother Abel in a fit of jealousy because of Abel's righteous character and because of that righteous sacrifice that he made. And so you have the first righteous man who was killed by a religious man. Both of them were religious men, but only one of them was a righteous man. And that's been the pattern all down throughout history. It's not always atheists that kill righteous people. There are religious people that also kill righteous people. It happens all of the time. Now, we're blessed to live in a country that stopped much of persecution for the way that we live our lives for Christ. And uh, at least in the form of killing, it stopped. But that begs the question, doesn't it? Why aren't we receiving the kind of persecution that Jesus said would come when he says that if you act like me, if you do like me, if you live like me, you are going to be persecuted for it? Now, why aren't we suffering the same kind of persecution? Now, the way that this is taught in the Scriptures, the disciples were fully expecting that they would receive the same kind of treatment or a blessing from Following those first seven Beatitudes, there was an outcome to that. They expected what would happen, and they also believed that this persecution that Jesus was talking about would happen. The way that it's taught here is that this is an inevitable consequence of living for Christ. And so we have to ask the question then, why aren't we suffering persecution? 
And I would submit to you that there is little persecution of Christians in America today because we have just stripped the gospel of anything that is offensive. And when the preacher refuses to preach about sin, when he won't preach about hell, when there's all this preaching about this pie-in-the-sky promised prosperity for those self-esteeming Christians, there isn't really much for people to take offense at. But when you begin to preach the truth of the gospel of Christ, and when you tell people they are dead in their sins, when you say that there is no cause for pride, when you say that we ought to grieve because of the wickedness of our vile condition, when you tell people that there is a hell waiting for those who do not believe in this singular, intolerant gospel of Jesus Christ, when you preach that, you're going to be persecuted. If you water down this truth of the gospel, if you want to defang Satan, if you want to take away the walls of separation that exist between truth and error, then opposition will go away. The truth of it is, you can fix this problem of persecution. You can ignore sin. You can approve of what people say about multiple ways that people can come to God. You can even give a formula for great humanitarian relief or things to do, and that will stop the persecution. We could become the purpose-driven church, and we can change the mission of Christianity to things like world hunger relief, to fighting AIDS, and to pregnancy counseling. There's nothing wrong with those things, but that's not the purpose of the church. Our purpose is to display the righteousness of Christ and to turn lost sinners away from this broad path of destruction that leads to this place called hell, turn them into the narrow way of Jesus Christ that leads to everlasting life. That is our purpose. And when we stick to that purpose, we can expect there's going to be persecution. Change the purpose and persecution melts away. And that is exactly what's wrong with our American churches today. We praise God because there is no persecution. And what we've done, we have cursed God at the very same time because we've taken away the very kind of preaching that God says will bring you persecution. Now, if you're a person who will not stand up for the truth or the gospel, if you're willing to go along with anything that goes along, then you have put yourself in a very dangerous position. You've actually put yourself in a place that's worse than persecution that you'll receive. Because here's what Jesus said in Luke, For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. Well, friends, we need to be aware of, of, be wary of hundreds of churches that are around us that have watered down the message and they've become what they think is nice. Forget about sin and its consequences. Don't preach about adultery. Uh, give up preaching about selfishness and pride. Begin to preach tolerance. Forget about self-sacrifice and about purity. Do that and you won't find opposition but you also will not find the character of Christ. Now, a second reason for persecution is the confrontation with Satan. When you live for Christ, you're in direct confrontation with Satan. You're right there in the middle of his path, and you're going toe-to-toe with the one who's called the God of this world. Do you think that if you're in his kingdom, if you're living in his domain, that Satan is going to lie down for you and let you walk all over him? You needn't think that. What Satan does, he does everything within his power to keep the gospel of Christ from 
reaching lost sinners from people believing the gospel and being saved. And if someone does happen to get saved, he just starts the whole process over by trying to destroy them, destroy their influence, destroy their testimony, so they can't reach others for Christ. And sadly, that is the place that most Christians live today. They have no influence on others because of sin that's in their lives. It's that confrontation that they have with Satan. And I want you to think about that for just a moment. What if you've been working on someone and you've been trying to give that person the gospel? What if it's a family member or it's a friend? Maybe it's someone at work and you've loved them, you've had compassion upon them, you've tried to help them, you tried to give them the gospel of Christ, you tried to live a Christian life in front of them, and you've been doing that for years and years and years, but it has no effect. It really hasn't caught on. They haven't really come to Christ because of that testimony. What do you think that's going to happen in the moment that you have a fit of temper? What do you think it's going to happen in a moment when you give in to some kind of sin that they know is inconsistent with the things that you've been telling them? What's going to happen to all the effort that you put in? Do they remember the effort? Do they remember the godliness? Do they remember the compassion that you've had on them? Do they remember all the good things that you've done? What is it that they remember? You know exactly what they remember. They remember that one time that you gave in to sin and what happens, it blows up the entire testimony that you've had before that person. Now, the reason that that happens is because you have stepped into Satan's territory. He doesn't like that. You have that confrontation with him. And so he's not going to give up easily. He's going to fight against you as much as he can. So there's this constant confrontation, and you can't expect that you are going to live in the world system, that you are going to live like Christ, and at the same time not irritate the one who is the God of this world. It will cause that great confrontation. And if you find yourself in a place where you don't antagonize anyone, where you can get along peaceably with every person that you meet, that everything is always fine, there are no problems, you need to check up something... Because you may not even be a Christian at all. Because Jesus said, if you live this way, if you do these things, if you follow me, you'll be persecuted. And so this character of Christ, the confrontation with Satan, those are all reasons for persecution. But you might be a little bit surprised at this next one. If you're a new Christian, if you're someone who doesn't read the Bible very much and doesn't study, this next one might surprise you a little bit. You might not even recognize it. Because this one is the cleansing by trials. Now, those first two reasons are because of what the world does to you. But hold on just a minute here, because this one is what God does for you or to you. God has designed you for this. You wait, you say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean God's the cause of some of this? God's the one who brings these things into my life? Why is God trying to make my life miserable? You need to clear up your thinking a little bit because Jesus said you're going to be blessed this way. You'll be blessed because of righteousness' sake. Persecution comes and you'll be blessed because of that righteous living. God's designed it that way. And his his design is evident from passages like Philippians 1 verse 29 and 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 3. In Philippians, Paul says, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. First Thessalonians says that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. 
For verily, when we were with you, we told you before that we should suffer tribulation, even as it came to pass, and ye know. So what's God doing with this? I mean, why? Why is God doing that? God's got a purpose in this. He's bringing these things into my life. What's God doing? Well, turn back again to 1 Peter chapter 1. And we'll look at some verses here that we read just a moment ago in our scripture reading that tells us a little bit about this. 1 Peter chapter 1 tells us about this. There, you know, there are a lot of people that are happy to be Christians. I mean, they'd be happy to be called a Christian if they get all the benefits, if there are any problems that go along with it. And yes, uh, make me a Christian. Put that sticker on me. Give me my card. Help me. Let, let, let me be a Christian. I'm all for that. What about that person's faith? I mean, does that... Is that person's faith real? Does that kind of faith need to be tested? Is it really saving faith? Look what Peter says, beginning in verse 3, chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now, you see verse number 7 there? God sends trials to shine up your faith. The trial burns off the dross, just like fire purifies gold. The bad is burned away in your life, and then the real faith then begins to shine through. Now, the question is, are you able to withstand that fire? And the truth of the matter is that real faith will withstand the fire. Trials come, and they weed out those that are fake Christians. Now, at the same time, for one who is a true Christian, trials will serve a wonderful purpose. They serve to increase your faith. They increase your dependence upon God. When you sail along through life, and there are no problems, and everything is going along just fine, what do you have the tendency to do? Do people wake up in the morning when there are no problems and they give glory to God because I live in another day when I'm never going to have another problem. Everything is just fine. Is that what happens? We know it's not because what happens when there are no problems, when there is no difficulty in life, then our tendency is to think that we can do this on our own. We can go on just like we've done days before. We don't really think about God. We can live this life in our own strength. But when the trials come to purge our faith, then what are you going to do? You're going to try to figure it all out on your own? You're going to try to handle it all and say, I can handle it all? Well, it just doesn't work that way. And you know the reason why I know it doesn't work that way? It's because I come on Wednesday nights, and we have this prayer page that we've filled out, and I see on that prayer page there are all kinds of problems. There are people with family problems. There are sicknesses. There are things that are going on. There are troubles at, around every corner. And what have these people done? They've come to the church. They've talked to us. they said, put these things on your prayer page and pray about them because I cannot fix this. I can't do it by myself. And that's what that's all about. The trials come, the persecutions come to help us to understand that God really is the one who is our helper. 
And so we learn to depend upon Him. God has a purpose in that. He brings these persecutions into our lives in order to shine up that faith, to make it real in Him, and to understand that God is the one who takes care of us. And what persecutions do, they elevate the relationship that we have with God the way nothing else could ever do. Now, there are reasons for persecution. Sometimes it comes because of our righteous living, and sometimes it comes because God is simply trying to tune us up. He's trying to help us to remember who truly is the helper. Now, does that make people angry, make you angry? Should that make a Christian angry? No, it shouldn't. Because what is the result of it? It's that blessing. It's that happiness that comes through it. Because you know that you are close to God. God's mercy, His grace, His love is showered down upon you. You feel closer to Him. And it's all because God has tried your faith. He's tested you. How could you be happier than when you're close to God? Now let's go on here. Righteous living, Christ-likeness, confrontation with Satan, cleansing by trials... Those are reasons for persecution. Now next, let's discuss reactions from persecutors. A godly, righteous person will have an effect on ungodly people. Now verse number 10 gives us the reason for persecution. That's righteousness. Verse number 11 gives us the reaction from the persecutors. Now this verse tells us what people will do. Jesus said, men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely. Now, there's this major reaction for righteous living. It's the main reason why we have to live righteously. And then the main reason produces these secondary reactions. Now, what is that main reason? Well, it is this, first, conviction of sin. Our righteous living provides a contrast. Our living is different from their living, and so that just begins to throw up red flags everywhere. Righteous living exposes unrighteous living. Now, how's the world going to know that there's anything wrong with the, with the way that they do things? How are they going to know that it's not okay for people to live together without marriage? How do they know that it's not okay to drink themselves into a stupor? How do they know it's not okay to cheat and to gamble and such things? Well, there are many things that people do that are matters of going against their conscience... But they keep doing those things because there is no contrast. Everybody around them does the same thing. So the tendency is to just go with the crowd, do what they do. There's no conviction over that sin because it just all seems to be normal. That's the way that people live. But when people observe us, they begin to think about it. They begin to think about their lifestyle. They see that difference, and what they see, they don't like. Now, these people that Jesus preached to had been able to get along with their hypocrisy. They were, they were doing just fine with all the vices they had. Lying, uh, that's not a problem for them. Greed, that's okay. That's the way that they live. Pharisees, Sadducees, publicans, it makes no difference. They're getting along just fine. And the reason that they're doing fine is because they're spending all of their time comparing themselves to one another. They can always find somebody that's worse than they were. And what that really does, it just drives things down to that the standard to live by is the very worst person that you can find. And if you're better than him, if you're just one notch above him, then you must be okay. But now comes Jesus. Here come his followers. Suddenly, it's like shining this bright light into their very dark world. Jesus says it this way in John chapter 3. 
He says, and this is the condemnation that light is come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. It's exactly like going out in the backyard sometime and finding an old board out there or rock and you turn it over and what do you find? There are all these bugs and as soon as as the light hits them, those bugs start to scatter everywhere. The light makes them very uncomfortable. And that's the same way when a Christian comes along living a life for Christ, he begins to shine a light into a dark place and the people, the critters, become very uncomfortable with it. Now, sometimes God will use that to bring people to him. People will see the difference in your life. They'll see the contrast. They'll see your happiness. They'll see that smile on your face in the midst of trials. They'll see that there's something very different about the way that you live, and they desire to have that. And God may use that sometimes to bring people to him. And you live righteously for that purpose, to bring people to Christ. But as we all know, not everybody's drawn in. Not everybody likes what they see. Some people are just simply irritated by it, and so it turns them against you. They don't like being exposed to the light. The contrast shows up here. It shows their pride. It shows their self-righteousness. And so they see then that the standard to live by is not the worst sinner that you could find. The standard to live by is Jesus Christ, the very perfect Son of God. That's what your life does to them. Now, that's upsetting, So what do they do? They want to get rid of the irritation. Isn't that what they did with Christ? I mean, thus you have the reason for Christ's crucifixion. What did Jesus do when he came? Did he harm anybody? Did he ever physically assault anyone? Was there ever any physical pain that Jesus put on anyone? Did Jesus ever do anything other than just bruise people's egos? That's all he ever did. And they did the very worst to him. They took him and he crucified him. So that's the reaction. It's conviction of sin. Sometimes it leads to salvation. Most often it evokes a very different reaction. Next, Jesus talks about another type of reaction, insult and injury. Not just conviction of sin, but out of that, out of that conviction of sin grows insult and injury. He says, men shall revile you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. I believe the persecution that we read about in verse number 10, that's talking about physical injury. It's talking about harsh, abusive treatment. And I can tell you stories about Christians down through the ages that would make your flesh crawl. Gruesome things have been done to Christians. Waterboarding's a picnic compared to what they've done to Christians. Do you remember that story about Nero? Nero poured tar on Christians. He set them on fire just to light his gardens at night. Christians were put in sacks with poisonous snakes. Hot lead was poured down their throats. Sometimes they would take a Christian and they would cut off body parts, and while they were still living, they would roast those parts in the fire right before their eyes. Roman Catholicism had its inquisition in which there were many Bible believers that were tortured in unspeakable ways because of their faith. There's been much physical abuse in the world because of Christian living. Some parts of the world, that kind of thing still goes on. But Jesus also says there's going to be much verbal abuse. He says, men will speak evil of you, and their purpose is to invite the scorn of the world to influence as many people as they can against you. 
There are many good godly preachers that have been scandalized by evil talk and false accusations. Reputations are ruined by hateful gossip. Christians were often accused of sedition and accused of immorality. And it was all done to turn that verbal abuse into physical abuse. Jesus even even says that there are going to be people of your own household that will turn against you. And you know, some of the worst things that can happen to a person, it's not necessarily the physical pain that's inflicted on you, but what about when you have a loved one, someone you care very deeply about, and they say something so hateful to you because of your belief in Jesus Christ? Those are some of the worst forms of persecution. In the first century... If you were a Jew and you turned to Christianity, it meant that you would be thrown out of your house. They cast you out of the synagogues. You were treated as nothing better than an animal. In Muslim countries today, when a person gets saved in a family and they turn to Jesus Christ, very often it means, most often means they're thrown out of the house and very often it can even mean death for them. It makes you wonder how... In our country, our politicians are telling us all about peaceful Muslims and about how Islam is this religion of peace. And yet, in every country where it rules, there's always this hatred and abuse. These people are nothing more than 7th century thugs. They oppress and they kill people. We're fooling ourselves to think that that's a religion of peace. Just this past week, I was talking to to our brother in Afghanistan and uh, fighting there, and he says it's very, very difficult to live there. It's very difficult to have... He's fighting the idea that he can even have compassion on these people because they're so hateful and mean because of the religion that they practice. See, this is all really the world's reaction against Christ. Following Christ can be painful. It can be physically and mentally taxing. But thank the Lord for this. The description does not end at verse number 11. There's also verse number 12 we find the reward from persecution. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. I want to finish today by talking to you about two types of reward that come for persecution. One of them is the present reward, and the other is the future reward. Now the first one then, the present reward, is the presence of the Spirit. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 4, If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the Spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. Notice there Peter says, If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. That's just a restatement of the Beatitude, isn't it? Isn't it just what Jesus said? You are blessed, you are happy when you are reproached, when you are persecuted. But then he follows that with an explanation. Why are you blessed? It says, because the spirit of the glory of God rests on you. And that is a very interesting way of phrasing this because it actually has the same meaning as what we find in the Old Testament. When God sent that cloud that came to the children of Israel, that cloud represented the Holy Spirit, and he came and he dwelt over the tabernacle. He filled the tabernacle. The presence of God could be felt with the people. It's the very same thing as that Shekinah glory, which represented the presence of God with the people that was in the uh, Holy of Holies, that light that shined between those two cherubim on the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. That was a special manifestation of the presence of God. This is just an amazing picture. 
What this is telling us that God is so pleased with your faithful life. When you are lived, when you live a life that's lived in righteousness, there's just that special presence of the Holy Spirit that you can feel. Now, all Christians, of course, have the Holy Spirit living in them. When you get saved, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you. But how many of us really feel that presence just like it's with us every single day and everything that we move and breathe and say, we can feel the presence of the Holy Spirit with us? That is exactly what's promised in these verses. I think that this is the very same kind of thing that made Christians able to die at the stake without fear. In 1555, Hugh Latimer and his friend Nicholas Ridley were about to be burned at the stake in Oxford, England. Latimer turned to Ridley and he said, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day such light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Those men died with the spirit of the glory of God resting on them. Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, was burned at the stake. He prayed a rather lengthy prayer when they were preparing everything and while he was standing there and they were getting all the things together. But he started out his prayer and he says, I give thee thanks that thou hast counted me worthy of this day and this hour that I should have a part in the number of thy martyrs. He kept praying. He went on later to finish it this way, just as they were touching that pyre with the torch He said, I praise thee for all things. I bless thee. I glorify thee, along with the everlasting and heavenly Jesus Christ, thy beloved Son, with whom to thee and the Holy Ghost be glory, both now and to all coming ages. Amen. Now tell me that those men did not have a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon them in the hour of their death. What a reward that is is to feel the presence of God in that way. And perhaps we do not feel it because we are not persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, that's the present reward. There's also a future reward. Our future reward is position in heaven. Now, look at the way that it's worded in the Beatitude. Great is your reward in heaven. Now, I wish we had time to develop all of that, but that is an indication that there is a difference in rewards. A Christian who is faithful, or not faithful, I should say, would suffer loss of rewards. And this is taught in passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 3. There it says, If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. There must be varying degrees of rewards between those that are lost and burned up in the fire and those that remain. So when a child of God then is persecuted for righteousness, the Bible teaches that he receives the highest reward. Notice where Jesus puts this person, the kind of company this person keeps. He mentions there the prophets. The prophets died for preaching, for carrying on the word of God. They stood fast and they did not give in. And he's telling us that a Christian who lives this way and suffers persecution will be put right up there with the prophets. Now, can you even think about that or imagine that, that there's, there could be Christians today that are put right up there with Moses and with, with Elijah, with Jeremiah, with John the Baptist. I mean, this puts you into some awesome company when you, when you think about what standing for God really means. Go to Hebrews chapter 11 and read all of that. The people that died in faith would not give up their faith. 
And see how the Bible speaks of them. You are in that company when you live righteously and you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now this is then just a marvelous way for Jesus to end the Beatitudes. Starting there with the spiritually bankrupt person in verse number 3, the person who has nothing, a person who is beggarly poor in righteousness, all the way to one who stands in heavenly places in Christ, enjoying great rewards of righteousness. That is an elevation, I mean, an amazing elevation. Righteousness is the key all the way through this. From no righteousness, which is where we are without Jesus Christ, to the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, to the highest position that's given in heaven. Is it really any wonder then that Jesus would say this, blessed, you are blessed for righteousness' sake. When you are persecuted, you are blessed for righteousness' sake. That may be all upside down to the people of the world who don't know Christ, but if you are a child of God, you can rejoice whenever the worst comes. Why? Because you're not a citizen of this world. You're a citizen of heaven. You're going to be there one day by God's grace. And the Bible says, great is your reward. Righteousness. That's what it's all about. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And there's only one way that you can be righteous. And that's to trust in the everlasting blood of of Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. That's where you receive righteousness. And when you live according to the pattern of Jesus Christ and the world comes at you with all that it can throw, when it seems like every day is difficult, yet when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, the Bible says you will be blessed, you will be happy. There is no way that you could live a higher, better life than to know that you're being blessed by God because you've lived the way that God says to live. Blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we spend together today. Lord, we just pray that you would bless your people. Help us to realize that in all the trials and all the difficulties, you're always standing there. You're always beside us. All we need to do is turn to you to help us through all of these problems. Lord, we pray that you might bless our people today. If there's someone here who doesn't know you as Savior, I just ask you that they would come today, that they would make themselves available to those who are here to help, those who will speak about salvation, about baptism, about church membership, that help is standing by. And we just pray, Lord, that you might bring someone to Christ today. Strengthen your people. Bless us in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.